kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 37. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about forty years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent." For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put him to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead." He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. In our last study, we saw the evangelization of the island of Cyprus. And while only one conversion was recorded, though there may have been others, 
The mission continued and led the workers to what is modern-day Turkey. Acts 13, verse 13. Now when Paul and his party, this included Barnabas, who has now assumed a secondary role both in the leadership and the work of the mission, but it also included John Mark and perhaps others, set sail from Paphos, this was the city where the proconsul Sergius Paulus was converted, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Recall that some of the Jews present and possibly converted on the day of Pentecost were from Pamphylia, and it may be that some of them had returned home and helped to prepare the soil there for a fuller presentation of the gospel. But Luke abruptly and tersely inserts a bit of shocking information when he informs that at Perga, John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Luke offers no explanation for why John Mark left, and in this lesson we will not spend time exploring some of the suggested reasons that will come up again in a later study. We can simply note this, that there may have been several difficult circumstances going on at this point. It may be that the Apostle Paul was ill. Some have supposed he contracted malaria, which would have been common in this place and time, and that he needed to go into the mountains to take refuge in the higher altitudes as he tried to recover. Others suppose that he had some severe infection that caused him to have vision problems. This tradition is taken from a comment he made in Galatians 4 and 15 about the brethren there being willing to pluck out their eyes and offer them to him. But if these things were affecting Paul, Luke does not mention them here. Verse 14, But when they departed from Perga, they will return to Perga and preach there later, but they left hastily. That might have been because Paul was sick, as we mentioned a moment ago. That's one theory. Or it might have been because the Spirit of God directed them to a more urgent mission field. They came to Antioch of Pisidia. This is the second Antioch we have encountered in Acts, but it was one of no less than 16 cities with that name, all built by Seleucius Nicator in honor of his father. The one in Acts 11 was Antioch on the Orontes in Syria, but this is Pisidian Antioch in the region called Galatia. Paul's ministry in Galatia is very important, and it will result in the composition of one of his most significant letters, which, by the direction of the Spirit of God, became a part of the New Testament Scripture. The journey from Perga to Pisidian Antioch is not easy. In fact, its perilousness has provided another theory as to why John Mark left the group. It would have been hundreds of miles of climbing mountains and fording rivers and trying to avoid some of the most notorious and dangerous bandits in the whole of the Roman Empire, according to the uniform testimony of historians both ancient and modern. Some scholars have suggested that when Paul recollected the perils he faced in his work in 2 Corinthians 11.26, he was referring to this event. But if they encountered any difficulties or exciting circumstances, again, Luke does not mention it. By the Spirit's superintendence, he is concerned only with disclosing those matters that pertain to the establishment and increase of the kingdom of God. Verse 14 continues that when they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. The order of the synagogue service described here by Luke is identical to the order recorded in ancient Jewish sources outside the Bible. It began with the recitation of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. Next, prayers were led by a synagogue official. The officials were called elders, or rulers, both terms carrying the same essential meaning. They were appointed from among the wisest, noblest, and most morally virtuous men in the community. After the prayers, there was a reading from the Law, the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture, and the Prophets, the second division of Hebrew Scriptures numbering 19 books. The last division of books, called the Writings, were only read on special occasions, but the Law and the Prophets were divided in the style of a lectionary, that is, there were readings assigned to each Sabbath day on the calendar year, and after the reading, one was invited to deliver a homily or a sermon, and then the service would close with a series of benedictions and blessings on the people. Students of the New Testament may notice a striking similarity between the organization and order of the synagogue and that of the Christian congregation and assembly. In fact, if time permitted, we could see that the parallels between the two were even more extreme, so much so that many have theorized that the Holy Spirit used the synagogue service as a model for the Christian congregation and assembly, adding the Lord's Supper and recasting some of the features to reflect the new emphasis on the person and work of Jesus Christ. While some have claimed that every synagogue had only one ruler, the text here shows a plurality. It's more likely that when a single ruler is mentioned, he was serving as the president or officiant over the assembly. When they invite Saul and Barnabas to speak, this too is in keeping with ancient testimonies about the way things were conducted. The Alexandrian Jew Philo said that any educated person in attendance could give the sermon and expressed, quote, Some of those who are very learned explain to them what is of great importance and use, lessons by which the whole of their lives may be improved. End quote. Indeed, the Apostle Paul was very learned. And the lesson he was able to give would improve the lives of his listeners in ways they could scarcely have imagined. The rulers of the synagogue called the sermon a word of exhortation, and this word carries the idea of encouragement or comfort. Some commentators have noted that there was no indication of any contention or jealousy between Paul and Barnabas regarding who would speak, even though both were invited. It's possible they decided beforehand, but it's also possible that what we have here is simply a powerful demonstration of Christian selflessness and maturity. These were two men who showed themselves many times over, mindful of their position in the kingdom of God. They were the servants of Christ, and to borrow and reappropriate the language of John the Baptizer, he must increase and they must decrease. In that mindset, personal pride will fade in the face of an opportunity to exalt the Savior. Verse 16, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, this was evidently the classic posture of Roman oratory, to signal that a speech was about to begin. And when the crowd had fixed their attention on him, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. There are two groups of people to whom Paul spoke. The Jews, who he called men of Israel, for although they were living in the diaspora, they all identified as the people of Israel, and the believing Gentiles, who he called you who fear God. These would be men like Cornelius, who had not converted to Judaism, but who respected and honored the true God and the law. And they're very interested in the words of the prophets. So there would have been a flavor of segregation in this synagogue. These two classes met together for prayer and instruction in God's word, 
but the former would not eat or socialize with the latter, and they considered them fundamentally unclean and separate from the community of God's people. The sermon Paul preaches here has often been compared against Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin and Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. There are certainly similarities between them, but I think it's far too much and impugns the reliability of Luke's report to say, as some do, that Luke is responsible for the fact that they all sound alike, as though he put his own words in the mouths of the speakers. Remember that Luke was not writing centuries after the fact and having to assume what was said. He was giving his report based on the eyewitness testimony of men and women who either heard or spoke these words. Furthermore, the speakers of all three of the aforementioned speeches had one major thing in common. They spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The similarities are almost certainly to be attributed to his guidance, and the differences to the occasions, audiences, and liberties which the Spirit afforded to the speakers. On this occasion, Paul presents Christ in such a way as to set up his first recorded presentation of that doctrine which would come to define him throughout history as a preacher, the doctrine of justification by faith. He begins in verses 17 through 23 with something of a recitation of the history of Israel. He does not focus on all the events and details that Stephen discussed because he has a different point to make. He's not here to indict these men for hypocritical blasphemy and a form of idolatry. He's here to do as the rulers of the synagogue invited him and offer a word of exhortation. Verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about forty years he put up with their ways in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that he gave them judges for about four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. Rather than lingering on all the details of this history, I'm going to assume, as Paul did with his audience, that my listeners are not utterly ignorant of these facts and do not need a meticulous recapitulation of them. Instead, I want to focus on the unique way in which Paul presents each of the events of Israelite history as gifts of God's grace and mercy to the people. Listen to his words. He says, God chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Then he put up with their ways in the wilderness. He destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, and he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years. And after they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul. And when he removed him, he raised up for them David as king. And from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. You see, the coming of Jesus 
was just the next in a long line of gracious and loving works of God on behalf of his people. Paul wanted them to realize they relied on God. They depended on him. They always had. Had it not been for his work and his gifts, they would have been nothing, and they would have perished along the way. Even when they asked for a king, which was in God's eyes a rejection of him and his rule over them, according to 1 Samuel 8-7, he used that request to bring about his ultimate purposes for the world. He raised up David. What Paul says about David is, I think, vitally important to the point he's going to make at the conclusion of the sermon. David was a man whose weaknesses and failures were well-documented and well-known. God even caused the sins he committed in secret to be exposed to all. But God called him a man after my own heart who will do all my will. How could God say that about David? Well, David's life, in spite of his great moral failures and of his shortcomings as a king and as a father, showed that he was loyally fixed on God as he could be, as a weak and ignorant man. When he left God's will, it was through folly, not a rebellious rejection of God, and a word of rebuke from one of God's prophets was all it took to bring him to repentance. And he never allowed himself to be pulled away from God to worship idols. So while David was certainly not a model of flawlessness, he was a model of faithfulness. And in him, the nation could see how to be the beneficiaries of God's mercy and how to have a special place in God's heart. Because of these qualities in David, he was given a very special promise and all Israel through him. He would have a descendant who would be flawless in his fidelity to God so that he would reign over God's people in perfect righteousness and his throne would never be taken away from him. And through this son of David, the people would receive the ultimate gift of God's grace, salvation from sin. And Paul says, God raised up this man too. His name is Jesus. In verses 24 through 25, Paul appeals to the recent and renowned ministry of John the Baptizer as a signal from God that these promises were being fulfilled at that very time. He says, God raised up Jesus after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John's baptism, by his own testimony, was to prepare the people for the coming of Messiah and his kingdom. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Some suspect that Paul himself might have heard John preach these things. Maybe he was among one of the detachments of Pharisees who went to investigate John in the wilderness. But even if not, Paul expected that knowledge of John and of this familiar line in his proclamations had reached all the way to Antioch of Pisidia, and it had signaled that all people, at least those who recognized that John was a prophet, ought not to be surprised to hear that soon after his ministry was over, the Messiah did in fact come to do his work. Verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. What an exhortation. He says, You are the ones to whom God has given his greatest gift. 
You are the ones for whom he has raised up the ultimate king. You are the ones who will see God bring ruin not merely to Egypt, but the whole dominion of sin, death, and Satan. You are the ones who will see the people of God inherit not merely Canaan, but the earth. Now, the first question that would surely have come up in the minds of Paul's listeners was, if this is true, why have we not heard about it from Jerusalem? Why has this not been published by the Sanhedrin or by the scribes in Israel? Paul is a master of anticipating objections and heading them off at the pass, as we will see many times in his epistles, and here it appears in his preaching. Verse 27 says, For, this is a word of explanation, and as I suggested, he is answering the question he knew they would ask. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. There are some wonderful announcements here that we might take for granted ourselves because they're so familiar to us. But the Jews did not expect their Messiah to be crucified. They did not expect for him to die before he reigned. And they certainly did not expect that it would happen by the hand of his own people. Paul states that while their actions inadvertently made them assistance in the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, they did these things because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which were read every Sabbath. This would have been quite a challenge to this audience. He's preaching here to a group of men who just heard the reading of the prophets on the Sabbath. Did they know what they heard? Were they so ignorant of its true meaning that they might be found to fight against God and to kill his anointed one if he came to them? But how could they believe such an outrageous thing? In verse 31, Paul begins to lay out the infallible proofs. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. To the Jews, who had been taught the superlative sanctity of truth and the evil of bearing false witness, the eyewitness testimony of God-fearing men was not something they dismissed lightly. Verse 32, And we declare you glad tidings, that is, the gospel, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus from the dead. With these words, Paul makes a claim that while familiar in apostolic preaching was revolutionary to the Jews of that time, that the crucified and risen Messiah was in fact the Messiah of the prophets. Verse 33 continues, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's interesting that Paul confirms that what we call Psalm 2 was placed in that same arrangement in the scripture as he knew it. But even more interesting is his interpretation of the psalm. Throughout history, Christians have tended to explain that Jesus is either the Son of God by his eternal nature or that he became the Son of God at the point of his incarnation. Yet in this context, the meaning of the phrase, you are my son, has to do with Jesus' royal position and his exalted status. He was begotten in this sense when he was given the authority to rule over heaven and earth at God's right hand. 
Paul says this was accomplished through his death and resurrection. And Paul will maintain this position for the rest of his career as a preacher and Christian. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, he wrote concerning Jesus that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul continues in Acts 13, 34, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Here, Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 3. I will give you the sure mercies of David. The New American Standard Version says, the holy and sure blessings of David. In the original context, this promise is made to those who come to God for salvation. And he offers to make a covenant with them in which these holy and faithful, true, sure, trustworthy, merciful blessings of David will be given to them. In Isaiah 55, 6-7, we find that These mercies are the abundant pardon of the people's sins. So Paul is saying that the promise to us to receive the sure mercies of David, the forgiveness of sins, was not given through David himself, but through Jesus, the promised son of David, by his resurrection from the dead. Verses 35 through 37, Therefore, He also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. This is the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. He is Jesus of Nazareth. His experiences, even those most shocking, and which seemed most unlikely to correspond to God's plan, were in fact the perfect fulfillment of all God's plans. To him, all the prophets bear witness, and in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. 
At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.